Hello and welcome to Scan Today's last week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov. I finished my PhD at Stanford, focused on AI earlier this year, and now I work at a generative AI startup. And I'm your other co-host, Jeremy. I work at Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety um, company that I co-founded, and yeah, we do the whole gamut from AI policy to technical AI safety. And now a quick interjection from future Andre. I just want to let you know that this episode is coming out a couple of weeks late, so the news is not so fresh, unfortunately. But also, we will be coming back to releasing episodes regularly starting next week. We will have an episode that covers all the stuff we haven't talked about in the last couple of weeks, where we have not released episodes. So if you're a regular listener, hopefully you're excited for us to be back. And thank you again for listening. And now back to the show. That's right. And uh, just a, a bit, bit of a preview. I think uh, this week we're going to have quite a bit of research and we're going to have quite a bit of open source, which we haven't had uh, recently. And we're going to have less hardware than in prior months. So <laughs> that's going to be a bit of a, a shift from before. Uh before we dive in, quick shout out to a couple of new reviews on Apple Podcast. J-Roll left a nice, very positive review, which we always appreciate, calling it this a top AI news podcast. I don't know how many AI news podcasts there are, but I but guess... we're a top one. We are top one, which is our aim, of course. Uh, so that's great. And also thanks to Big Jim for... Uh, calling it the best podcast out there. And hey, I, I don't know if I agree, but you know, it's you don't, do try. you don't know if you agree. There's a I mean, lot of good podcasts on AI out there. Okay. Are, I mean, you, it depends on what you want, gym? I guess. I don't know. I'm a big gym guy. I mean, I think okay. we're, uh, you know, you know, maybe the best AI podcast for news. All righty. Well, uh, thank you for reviews and thanks to some emails we got as well. As always, you can contact us with feedback at contact at lastweekend.ai for any suggestions, story, ideas, anything you would like to let us know. And we do also appreciate positive reviews just to make us feel good. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into the news, starting with tools and apps. Our highlight story is introducing Play HD 2.0 Turbo, the fastest generative AI text-to-speech API. So this is a product announcement from Play HD, and they released this uh, new model. That's the fastest voice LLM, <laughs> say LLM language and linguistic model, which is maybe not what... That's not what we mean. That's not LLMs are. Anyway, and they allow for real-time speech streaming from text in 300 milliseconds or less uh, with support for input text streaming, and it can integrate with ChatGPT and, uh, yeah, uh, deliver audio in streaming, you know, in 70 milliseconds. So basically you can talk to an AI in real time with synthetic generation of audio 
in the mix. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, there's been pretty fast APIs out there, but this does seem to be the fastest as a claim. And it opens up the window for, as you can imagine, like talking to AI characters, which I'm sure will be all over the place soon. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it was maybe even just last week we were talking about this idea that um, speed of conversion from you know text to audio and vice versa is just such a critical metric for the natural kind of flow of language when you're having a conversation with a, an agent or something. So I think this is actually, this is a big step. I mean, it, it might seem like it's just a difference in uh, in quantity, but I think it's a difference in quality. You shorten up the uh, the time required to generate these things. You get things that are much more sort of natural seeming. Um, though in fairness, uh, when it comes to just like LLMs talking to humans, the bottleneck there is usually the generation of the text by the LLM and not the kind of generation of the speech, but still really cool. Um, it's a cool company too. They have a whole bunch of different use cases. It's the first time I've ever heard of them. Uh, they've got a bunch of widgets and tools on their website, uh, pretty cheap, like 30 bucks a month ish to like access all these services, hashtag not an ad. Um, but really it kind of starts to show you how easy it's being, it's becoming to generate like AI powered speech clones, voice synthesis and all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I, my mind, obviously more on the security side, always, always go to like, what will people be able to do maliciously with this, but still nonetheless, uh, very useful, really cool, uh, use cases. They explore on their website too. Um, they've got like premium AI voices. They've got voice cloning, voice to text, um, a custom pronunciations and phonetics. So sometimes, you know, if you work in a specialized area, you might want to have an acronym that's you know, pronounced a certain way. Well, they, you know, they do that and, and so on and so forth. So really you know, booming industry of AI voice generation and PlayHT actually seems, again, I'm surprised I hadn't heard of them before, but it seems like a pretty uh, important company. Yeah, uh, certainly. I haven't seen too many players. I mean, text to uh, audio, text to speech is, uh, you know, not rare as an application, but I think it's uh, doesn't have quite as many players that we are aware of. And uh, this one is is pretty cool. I also like in their announcement here that. They get into a bit of detail. This uh, feature is specifically for conversations, and they say it was trained on over a million hours of conversational speech, which is pretty impressive. There aren't many data sets out there for this sort of thing, right? And it has a feature called conversationalize, <laughs> which uh, basically when it produces audio, it doesn't just produce kind of a typical text-to-speech AI sounding thing, it can also make it more natural sounding, which uh, is, is if you listen to the examples, is pretty dramatic. It like introduces all these typical human sounding pauses and things. So yeah, it's a cool new tool and uh, nice to see some progress in the space. And on to the lightning round with a few small stories. First is that YouTube Music now lets you make your own playlist playlist art with AI. And that's the story. You can um, obviously create playlists with YouTube Music. They are kind of Spotify alternative. And now you can use generative AI to create uh, kind of al album art, I suppose, for that playlist. They can choose from prompts. And uh, I guess it's already available for English language users in the US. Uh, so yeah, just a neat little 
feature of that, that kind of big. Yeah, I think, well, we've talked about it before too, but big picture wise, you know, the, um, we're, we're sort of moving into the era of, uh, AI is no longer just recommending content, but AI is generating and recommending content, kind of closing that loop, especially on social media platforms like YouTube. So, you know, I think this is actually a pretty big step. It, it sort of mirrors a lot of YouTube's other moves, like you know, starting to give creators ideas for videos they might want to make based on their past videos and so on and so forth. And so, you know, kind of gradually owning more and more of the content creation stack in addition to the content distribution stack. So um, kind of an interesting, an interesting little step, but part of a big picture uh, in which generative AI, I think, is just going to become like the, the bigger uh, kind of driving force behind content creation online. Interestingly, they don't allow you to input any prompt. You have to select from a set of options. You can select kind of a theme. So you can select uh, from a set of animals, uh, like weather, you know, a, a bunch of kind of different categories, and then you can select a style, and then it generates from that. So you're kind of pretty limited, actually, in the range of things you can do, which is Maybe a good idea, given what you can get up to with uh, text to image. But yeah, I like this. You know, it's such a nice little touch of integrating AI to personalize your playlist. It's, I think, kind of cool. And next up, we have sick of meetings. Microsoft's new AI assistant will go in your place. And if that sounds like a headline out of a Black Mirror episode, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just it kind of has, just sounds like a headline of a Black Mirror episode. Um, so Microsoft's unveiled Copilot. Uh, this is, you know, as we've covered before, it's an AI assistant that's um, designed for the workplace, integrated throughout all of the kind of Microsoft suite of products. But uh, this particular version has the ability to attend meetings on behalf of employees. So if you don't want to go to that meeting, hey, just have your Microsoft powered copilot uh, attend for you and uh, take notes, transcripts, summaries, and so on and so forth. So you know, pretty pretty obvious, I want to say, next step in the evolution of you know, generative AI. Summaries, obviously, one of the, the things that generative AI does best, um, partly because it relies not on kind of generating facts out of whole cloth, but rather, in a sense, compressing or translating them from you know, one, one form of expression into another. And so, um, you know, not, not surprising hallucination, much less of a risk here because you do have ground truth that you're feeding into the system and just asking it to summarize. So uh, all the usual objections you can imagine here, um, you know, like, is this thing going to have the same judgment as a human employee? Um, you know, what about, what about privacy? What about, uh, what about errors as well? Hallucinations, things like that. So I think uh, we'll, we'll see if this ends up getting adopted. I'd be surprised if it didn't on some level, but part of our journey is we're trying to figure out how exactly uh, generative AIs, LLMs, and so on fit into the workflow. How much can we straight up automate uh, versus how much do we just augment at this stage in the process? Right. Uh, I will say this headline is overstating things a bit. Uh, what it really means is that, you know, Copilot can take notes and make summaries from meetings, uh, which I think Zoom also has now an AI companion or something like that to do that. So if you just need the summary of what happened during the meeting, you can... I guess, send Copilot in your place, but you can't actually have like, oh, I attended on my behalf and give my talking yeah, points. Yeah, give my talking points. <laughs> you would have to train a personal chatbot, uh, not by Microsoft for that. But, it's not uh, 2024 yet. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yet another, I guess, feature among the big set of features in the yeah. AI Microsoft Copilot suite. 
And a last story about tools. Anthropic brings Cloud AI to more countries, but still no Canada for now. So uh, Cloud, if you're not aware, is kind of leading chat GPT alternative, seemingly in terms of the quality and, and general like sort of performance of it. It's been expanded slower than ChatGPT, so it's kind of lagged a little bit in terms of having access for, to everyone. It's currently out in beta. And yes, now it's expanded to be available in 95 countries, but not Canada for some reason. <laughs> Probably because of polit politicians, I guess. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I like how VentureBeat basically just put in their headline just a, a little little fuck you. <laughs> like, like it's just the, the way they do it. It's in brackets, right? It's not even, it's like Anthropic brings Claude to more countries, but still no Canada. Brackets for now. It's like, okay, it'll come. Um, so yeah, we, we don't actually know quite, I guess, why Canada is not included. It looks like um, uh, it, it may have to do with... Uh, you know, there's there's a, a regulatory environment in Canada that's still taking shape. So that that may be part of it. You know, they cite in the article how Canadian politicians have supposedly taken a hard line towards AI regulations. Um, we do have a, a bill coming up in our House of Commons called Bill C-27, which explicitly is focused on, um, or sorry, it's, it's AI and Data Act, which is part of the bill, is focused on uh, basically putting in criminal penalties for uh, deploying an AI system that is then misused and causes harms in, in various forms. Um, I wouldn't call that bill, though, uh, like a hardline bill. It, it takes, in some ways, a you know, fairly balanced, uh, balanced approach. But it is kind of funny that when you look at the list of these countries where it's been deployed, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I love Albania. You know, who doesn't love Albania? Uh, I love Belize. Big fan of Belize, you know? Cape Verde, uh, you know, wherever the hell that is. Big fan, big fan. But uh, but Canada, Canada falls behind those countries. So good for us, you know, good old G7 country. Right. This article also notes that uh, Google's Bard is not available in Canada, yeah. which I wasn't yeah. aware of. So, uh, yeah, I guess big companies are a little uh, hesitant. Yeah, I, I think it, it is the, the evolving landscape in Canada. I, I'm sure that'll play a big role. Uh, by the way, uh, sorry, just a, a, for Canadian context, um, the Canadian government recently uh, wanted to force Meta to like pay its pay journalists for their stories. And um, when it did, Meta was like, cool, we're just not going to allow anybody to post any news stories on Canadian Facebook or Meta products. And like they did that. And now the government is basically just like, <laughs> so so that's that's how things are going over here uh, uh, okay and on to applications and business our first story is humanoid robots face a major test with amazon's digit pilots so amazon will be testing the robot digit which is a bipedal humanoid robot basically a human looking robot by agility in its uh, fulfillment center, uh, Amazon will be basically trying to integrate humanoid robotics in these fulfillment centers. So far, they primarily use these little, like cart robots to deliver things from place to place, but they don't have, you know, sci-fi-looking robots. And this will be their first major initiative in that direction. So. You know, if this succeeds, that could have a huge effect on the industry of humanoid robotics, which has seen a lot of activity this past year. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's 
pretty dramatic for this space, I would say. Yeah, it's also playing into this whole debate that we're having as a civilization around you know workforce displacement with AI. Um, you know, the, according to so so the um, uh, Amazon robotics guy that at least BBC interviewed about this <clears throat> said that. This, this robot, just to give you a sense of its range of capabilities, it can deal with steps and stairs or places in our facility where we need to move up and down. So fairly kind of uh, fairly robust. It is still a prototype, and, but there's this trial is really about whether it can work safely with human employees. So truly get integrated into the workforce here. And, um, you know, there's a, a union quote that was pulled um, uh, as well. You know, unions predictably not happy. They're saying essentially here that Amazon's automation is a head first race to job losses. And they say that they've already seen hundreds of jobs disappear uh, in its fulfillment centers. Um, Amazon, though, kind of came back and said, well, look, uh, we actually expect this to create hundreds of thousands of new jobs with its operations um, across 700 different categories. And they're saying in skilled roles and all that. So sort of an interesting question like, um, okay, if this is true, not clear that it is, because um, we've heard this one before in contexts where actually, you know, in the, in the limit, of course, we will be replacing people. But um, if this is true, it, you're still shifting jobs from kind of uh, like more low skilled jobs that are more accessible to say lower income people to higher skilled jobs. And um, that's good and bad, but it's, it's definitely a, a complex calculation. So um, anyway, all part of the, the context behind the story here. Right. Some more context, uh, I suppose, is that there has been quite an effort to include robotics in Amazon going on for a while, uh, for the past decade, but it has mainly been in these autonomous mobile robots. Uh, So in 2012, Amazon purchased Kiva Systems that laid the foundation for Amazon Robotics, and now there are 750,000 of these autonomous mobile robots. So if you look at these fulfillment centers, they're like semi-automated with a lot of sort of delivery of packages from storage areas to humans, and the humans often then need to like do the actual fine-grade hands-based manipulation, so to speak. These robots still can't do that. They don't have fingers or anything like that. They pretty much can just grab things and walk from place to place. But that does open up a lot of possibilities that uh, are not there for these real robots. So we'll see where this goes, but I think it's safe to say that Amazon will keep pushing on this uh, for the foreseeable future. And a related story, actually, also on this humanoid robotics topic, is that Figure Zero One Humanoid takes first public steps. So Figure is another company in this space, uh, like Agility, and they have unveiled their Figure Zero One Humanoid Roma, uh, robot and demonstrated the bipedal walking. So this is still earlier than Agility. Agility is already trying to commercialize. This is you know, just a first unveiling, and they expect to release in 2024. But I think this is you know, good to highlight just because Agility and Figure and multiple other companies are in this humanoid robotics space making pretty rapid progress. Of course, Tesla is also working on their humanoid robot as well. So this is something that may be easy to miss with this whole you know, language model chatbot year, but it uh, does start to feel like in the coming years, humanoid robotics will perhaps become more prevalent. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. The world is built for humans, right? So you'd expect that sort of form factor to be a little bit more you know, useful for some applications at least. But it's definitely something that people do debate, right? We've seen the debate kind of through the through the podcast of, as we've covered other stories with non-humanoid robots. You know, exactly where is that line? Like, like you know, does it make sense to do to go with the human form or to go with something perhaps more efficient, but that the world isn't quite ready for or built for just yet? Um, one of the interesting things about this, and now I don't know enough about humanoid robotics at all, but I find this kind of interesting. One of the things that's cited as a differentiating factor for these folks is their use of what they call whole body reasoning, which they say encapsulates you know, natural arm swing uh, where the torso and pelvis motion is achieved by regulating angular momentum rather than prescribing specific trajectories. That's really interesting because in, in robotics, often, almost always, at least as far as I can tell, people focus on specific trajectories, like you know, a trajectory being sort of like an action. You can roughly think of it that way and where all of the robots, like sensors and actuators have to be to carry out that action. Um, in this case, it seems like they're taking maybe a more global perspective. Uh, I, again, in my feeble mind wants to think of this as like maybe a alluding to some form of more end-to-end -end training perhaps where you're less modular but instead like you're you know you're the the, um, the machine learning goes into controlling this whole system or the control theory at least is done at the whole body level um, which hopefully would make it more robust and would certainly reflect maybe something closer to what evolution did with the human form uh, to get us to where we are but um, yeah yeah I can say as someone who has worked in robotics um, I mean this is Pretty much just controls in general and if you've seen these very popular videos of boston dynamics that's pretty much what they're doing right they're saying go here and then there's a planner that figures out all the physics and everything so this line of uh, whole body reasoning not really a it's, thing it's not clear to what extent it's actually you know, differentiating because you have to have natural arm swinging and take into account and go momentums and things like that just to walk in a stable way. So uh, maybe they have some technical advances, maybe not, but uh, regardless, uh, yeah, definitely a major player to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's why we pay you the big bucks on the podcast, Andre. We sure do. <laughs> <laughs> And on to the lightning round with some shorter stories. The first story is AI generating music app Refusion turns viral success into $4 million in funding. That's pretty much the story. There is uh, this app called Refusion that allows you to generate music by describing its lyrics and musical style. And the app generates riffs uh, complete with singing and custom artwork. So um, it was just kind of a cool project at first. Now they have funding. And uh, just as a fun note, if you don't know, Refusion is a riff on Diffusion, the thing that you know does most AI art these days, Stable Diffusion. So hey kind of fun, fun name they have, yeah. It's just a little, little meta joke. And next up, we have ChatGPT Creator partners with Abu Dhabi's G42 in Middle East AI push. I'm always amused by headlines that go with ChatGPT Creator rather than writing OpenAI, just because of like how you know how, how popular ChatGPT has become that it's sort of like become that catch-all. Um, but yeah, so this is an article about. 
um, this, uh, well, this big push in the UAE, which by the, so Abu Dhabi, of course, capital, of the UAE, UAE, of course, the country that created the Falcon series of models, the most recent one, one of which is Falcon 180B. Um, so these are at the time of their, their launch, at least Falcon one, the first one was the leading open source LLM. Uh, so you know, they clearly, they know what they're doing. And so here we're seeing a partnership, uh, between the UAE here and, uh, open AI on, uh, it, it seems sort of um, not quite ambiguous, but but there aren't too, too many details. Um, what Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, of course, said was that they're going to leverage um, G42. So G42 is this UAE-based uh, research firm, uh, leveraging G42's industry expertise. We aim to empower businesses and communities with effective solutions that resonate with the nuances of the region. So if you're politically sensitive, you might go, hmm, what does that mean? Are we talking about, you know, censoring LLMs in certain ways that might be uh, commensurate, let's say, with the political outlook of the the, the regime there or whatever? But um, anyway, so it's, it's all part of uh, OpenAI, I think, expanding its geographic footprint and the UAE kind of getting deeper into this space. And next story is AMD scores two big wins. Oracle opts for MI300X, IBM asks for AB FPGAs. So the story is that Oracle will be using AMD's uh, GPUs for its cloud services, possibly because of NP NVIDIA GPU shortages, and IBM is expected to use their uh, AMD's FPGA solutions for AI workloads on its new AI inference platform. So. Two big companies with big offerings in the cloud and in sort of, you know, business big offerings. Offer. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does seem like a pretty big win for AMD on this one. Yeah, AMD, of course, like a big um, NVIDIA competitor, increasingly starting to seem like a credible NVIDIA competitor. We've seen them announce uh, GPUs that seem pretty compelling uh, that are going to be coming out soon. And um, one of the, the big stories with the Oracle piece or the dimensions to it is that they decided to go with AMD rather than uh, basically solve their, their problem in-house, rather than uh, developing their own internal uh, chips program or, or sorry, uh, yeah, GPU development or design program. Um, so, so, you know, that reflects, okay, Oracle made that call, even though they're a really big company, they're like, you know what, it just doesn't make sense. AMD will be able to do this faster and better. And uh, so they, they went ahead and did that. That is a vote of confidence for AMD and another little piece of evidence, along with the IBM thing, uh, in favor of the idea that AMD, you know, starting to make some inroads perhaps in this market. Next story, Alibaba, Tencent among investors in China's rival to OpenAI with $341 million in funding. So we've covered a couple stories about the so-called uh, China's OpenAI, and this is another story like that. Uh, so these technology giants, Alibaba and Tencent, some of the big biggest companies in China, are some of the investors in Jipu, this AI startup that aims to rival OpenAI, that has uh, gotten these $341 million in funding this year. Uh, that's kind of the extent of this story. Not too many details here. They're developing AI models, trains on large amount of data, basically trying to make a chat GPT seemingly and that's all we know yeah there's you know they list a couple of interesting investors including sequoia um and uh alibaba and tencent as well so pretty big um uh you know 
pretty big uh, sort of powerhouse players backing this company. Um, it has raised here $341 million this year. That's what's being announced, 2.5 billion Chinese yuan. And that quantity, you know, if, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know my bias when it comes to this. Like, if you're going to make an open AI rival, repeat after me, you got to raise more than that. You're going to need- You got to have the billions, not the millions. Where's my billions? Where's my billions? I don't see them. It's soft. It's weak. These are rookie numbers. So I think one of the issues here is going to be, you know, how much can the state get behind? And that's really the model in China, you know, these state-backed investments um, and the big tech company uh, investments. But- a lot of this is just this is a policy priority in China. So the investments come often as much from you know state related funds as they do from from private sector ones. So we'll have to see. But for the moment, you know, three hundred million like uh, that's order of magnitude. That's what it costs to train GPT four, just to give you an idea, right? So like it, you've got one maybe one and a half GPT four level training runs out of that three hundred million. Not enough, I wouldn't imagine, to sustain a company, especially in in China, right, where hardware is harder to come by and therefore more expensive. Looking a little deeper into this, actually, there are interesting bits you can find on their website. So if you just look at GPI, they do offer uh, already some chatbots here. They have GLM-130B, a bilingual pre-trained language model with 130 billion parameters. The initial version of this paper was released a year ago. And uh, yes. it seems like it's just been updated. So, so GLM-130B, at the time of its release, was actually, fun fact, the number one uh, most powerful open source language model. So if you were like a researcher and you wanted to use, and I'm talking about like general LLM, like including English language. So if you wanted to use an LLM, you'd be going to like Jirpu's like um, uh, internally built LLM, um, which a lot of people... Uh, at least in my corner of the universe, we're, we're talking about like, whoa, that's a pretty big security issue. If the biggest, most powerful open source model in English is a China-made system, like, you know, what biases are, are baked in, you can't control it, and so on and so forth. So it just kind of speaks to the importance of the open source ecosystem. It's, it's pretty humorous looking at this paper that was initially released in October of 2022 and was updated to version 2 in October of 2023. On archive, and they like removed Da Vinci from the abstract because that's no longer <laughs> GPT three. Anyway, so GPU AI uh, or GPU seems to be a company worth knowing about in China as a competitor to chat uh, to OpenAI. And next up, uh, last in our lightning round for the section, we have AI companies drive demand for office space in tech hubs new study finds. Um, so essentially, it was somewhat, I don't want to say somewhat unsurprising, but basically in a context where everything seems to be crashing, AI seems to be doing quite well, thank you very much. Um, tech sector is also the top industry for office leasing, leasing growth. Um, it accounted apparently for 16.5% of the total market in Q3 of 2023. So maybe not shocking given the boom in AI. Um, AI companies are driving that activity, especially in, in tech hubs uh, like, and then they, they list quite a few, um, San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, um, okay, I guess uh, Silicon Valley broadly then, New York, Boston, and LA. Um, so yeah, I mean, not a shock if you're looking for, you know, thinking about what what domains would actually be spurring growth right now, you know, that's those are the domains, and therefore that's, that's where the, uh, the office space resourcing is going. 
Yeah, if you live in a barrier, you know that many people sort of feel like AI is saving San Francisco from its demise. Uh, that's kind of a bit of a vibe right now, and it really does feel like there is a big concentration of AI talent in San Francisco in particular. So, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic, honestly, for the Bay Area, for San Francisco, how big of a deal AI has been for, you know, office space. <laughs> and one last story for this section, OpenAI is in talks to sell shares at an $86 billion valuation. That's pretty much a story. There's not much beyond that. Uh, pretty dramatic valuation, obviously, given that I don't know if we even have profits at this point. Uh, but uh, they have revenues. Uh, I believe we covered something like in the one billion range. So they are a big uh, commercial player now, obviously. But still, this is a pretty ambitious valuation. Clearly, yeah. I, th I think it was something like um, was it uh, around a hundred million dollars a month they're making or so. So you're right. Yeah, like a billion dollars a year. I think is currently their 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 top line revenue. And then there's a lot of cloud costs associated with that, of course. But still. Big dollars. Um, they did seek a valuation from Microsoft of uh, up to ninety billion dollars for a sale of shares, um, uh, and yeah, uh, earlier. So I think earlier th this year, the article was saying, yeah, they they um, made a, a share sale for three hundred million dollars at a valuation of thirty billion. So we're seeing like a three x multiple here on on the uh, the the uh, valuation putative valuation of the company. Um, it is apparently a tender offer. Um, so uh, this is essentially a, a kind of a, a public offer um, that you make uh, if you're in some, some kind of um, acquirer to the shareholders of a publicly traded company. So if you like are interested in acquiring um, shares from OpenAI, you kind of like make an open solicitation in this way. And uh, that's what I know about this because that's what Wikipedia said. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it seems. Kind of like a ballsy move. Chat, uh, OpenAI is having a lot of competition right now to their core offering, which is ChatGPT. Right, you have Anthropic, but you have multiple players with their own large language models, and the moat seems to be getting thinner and thinner with things like Llama Two. So I'd be curious to see if people are on board with this kind of valuation, or if people are starting to be a little skeptical about OpenAI's dominance uh, continuing. That's a, I feel like that's really the headline that's hidden here. That's a great point, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know if it's 50-50 or what, but there's a universe where OpenAI or closed source wins, and it's like, this valuation will turn into like tens of trillions of dollars like if they make AGI. Uh, but then there's a world where the margins all get eroded and you're throwing away, you know, a $90 billion valuation, but we'll see. And moving on to projects and open source with our first story being introducing video to text and Pegasus one from 12 labs. So 12 labs, this company is announcing their latest video language foundation model, Pegasus one, and they have a bunch of new video to text APIs. Uh, the new model has 80 billion parameters, so kind of the typical size, I suppose, or the size range for these giant models. And it was trained over 300 million diverse, carefully curated video text pairs, making it uh, seemingly, you know, 
kind of the biggest model for video to text out there. Uh, sort of niche application I haven't seen very much of. Uh, it is not open source. This is just a project. But you can apply to a waitlist to uh, have access to the API. Yeah, really quite interesting. One of the things that they uh, highlight about their model in the product release is that this is like, so it's actually end-to-end trained. So there are three components to this model. Uh, There's the video encoder. So essentially the thing that takes a video and then just finds an intelligent way to compress it down into a really, really long list of numbers known as an embedding. So you've got this video encoder piece that processes the video and and spits out a, a list of numbers that describes it. Um, and then the video language alignment model, which basically like tries to take that representation and turn it into a form that's maximally useful, ma- maximally uh, helpful for a language model to process. And then the language decoder, which actually says, okay, um, here in, in plain English or in natural language is what is contained in this video. All of that is trained end to end. So sometimes you might see those sorts of systems be trained separately. Like in you know, just the video encoder is trained on its own. Uh, just the you know, video language alignment model, perhaps, and then the language decoder all separately. This is end to end, so eighty billion parameters, fully end to end trained. That that will have taken a lot of horsepower, not least because apparently they used over three hundred million. Um, they say carefully curated. I mean, I don't know how carefully you can curate three hundred million uh, text uh, video text pairs, but they have three hundred million of them, um, and that makes it, as they claim, one of the largest video text corpora there is for video language foundation model training. So that's quite a contribution. Um, and they've got a, a whole technical report on this, um, which is uh, which is quite uh, quite interesting to, to review if, if uh, that's the sort of thing you'd like to do. Yeah, this uh, blog post reads like a mix of like a research blog post and a product yeah. <laughs> uh, release. Uh, they do have some of these APIs you can go get in a waitlist for. So they have a GIST API that just produces a title and some hashtags to go along with your video. They also have a summary API, which gives you summary and chapters and highlights. And they have a generate API, which is basically like ChatGPT. So now with GPT-4, you can give it an image and a text prompt, and it produces some text with understanding of the image. This is basically that, but for video, which to my knowledge, isn't something you could do with OpenAI or or really many other tools out there. So it's interesting to see this coming out. Yeah, another, they list, what I like about this, you know, there's some some papers, I'll call this a paper because it's kind of, it's almost what it is. Uh, But there's there's some papers that do a really good job like summarizing what they've done that's different. And this one really feels like that. You know, like one of the, the key things that just, um, kind of jumped out at me when I looked at this is they they're highlighting the fact that they're doing kind of what they call video native embeddings. So you know, traditionally, if or currently, when you do video work, often what you do is you're secretly doing image work, like you're using image uh, image native embeddings, let's say, like um, Clip, like OpenAI's Clip, which basically takes an image and then tells you what's in it, you know, writes a caption for it. Um, so kind of using that to process every frame or, or every so many frames. Um, and then and then finds a way to kind of bundle all that together. What they're doing is natively doing video focused embeddings, like treating this as its own, in a sense, as its own data type. Um, and uh, and they claim that that's a, a big differentiator that they incorporate the spatio-temporal information, so that the time axis is part um, in a holistic way as part of their uh, processing scheme. So kind of interesting, and, and again, really nicely laid out blog post slash paper. 
And the next story is Adept releases Fuyu 8B for multimodal AI agents. So multimodality, as we've covered this year, has been really kind of a big trend in all sorts of combinations. So that was video and text. This is for charts, documents, and diagrams, and also has improved OCR, so recognizing text in images. Uh, and yeah, it's been released. It uh, is really fast for being scaled down. So it re- delivers responses for large images in under 100 milliseconds uh, and obviously is is better than other stuff. So uh, another model that seemingly is, you know, the best you can do being released. Yeah. And, you know, again, we've talked about Adept before on the podcast, but they are another sort of AGI company spun out from uh, authors of the original Transformer paper. I feel like that's a refrain that we we keep ta- saying with all these spinoff companies that uh, f- former uh, Google and, and DeepMind people. Um, but yeah, the, you can see their focus here. So their philosophy is very much like rather than maybe, you know, more the open AI trajectory of focusing hard on, on language modeling and, and using that as a path to AGI. They want to focus on tool development, tool use in particular. Um, it seems to me that those two trajectories are kind of blurring together a little bit now. Um, but Fuyu uh, eight billion certainly does represent a you know step in that direction. And um, as they say, you're really focused on the productization now. So designed for digital agents, um, it can support arbitrary image resolutions and um, and answer questions about graphs, blah blah. But those are the sorts of things that you want to do, you know, do and, and focus your resources on when you're thinking about real world applications. And so, um, anyway, kind of interesting uh, that Adept is moving in this direction. They do have this sort of productized and packaged as well. Um, so that'll be a, a sort of sort of interesting to see what they do with this. It's still a small model, right? 8 billion, not huge, but the capabilities are pretty impressive. This model actually is open sourced, although it is uh, open sourced with a non-commercial license. So I guess they're not fueling competitors, but it's nice to see the open sourcing of models by companies to be a continuing trend. And onto the lightning round, starting with Mini GPT V2, large language model as a unified interface for vision language multitask learning. So we covered me GPT V1, I think uh, early this year, maybe four or five, who knows how long ago. And this is V2. Uh, so Mini GPT, the original was kind of created by combining some existing architectural pieces, basically to scrape together a model that has the same capabilities roughly as GPT-4. It was multimodal. It took in images and text and uh, could then you know, output text. And this is the second version of that. So they have some new modifications here, unique identifiers for different tasks. They have a free stage training approach and they show that GPT v to achieve strong performance and, you know, obviously outperforms the first version by quite a bit. Yeah, and I think they're using Llama 2 right now. I'm, I'm trying to remember if the first version used Llama or Llama 2. I believe 2. it was also Llama, uh, Llama 1 back then. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. So, you know, a lot of the performance boost here presumably coming from Llama 2, which is a much more um, sort of heavy-duty, high-horsepower language model at the at the core of this thing but yeah i mean it's it's i think a, a great example of the open source kind of um hacking together of something with 
uh, you know, with with pretty impressive capabilities from from I don't want to say scraps, but that's you know that's that's the vibe. They take a vision transformer. Um, at the input, and then the, they don't train that; they kind of freeze that. So they're just kind of stealing that from another model, and then they fine tune stages beyond that for uh, for this particular task. So, um, yeah, sort of a, a Lego building block approach, not end to end trained, but uh, certainly impressive, and, and shows you what you can do with with ingenuity in the space. Kind of interestingly, so the first uh, Mini GPT, which was actually Mini GPT four. Uh, was released back in April of 2023 uh, by the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. This one, Mini GPT V2, is also by this uh, King Abdullah University in collaboration with Meta AI Research. So <laughs> I guess they like directly collaborated to update to Llama 2 and generally uh, update this uh, you know Mini GPT4. And uh, yeah, it's open source as with the previous one and uh, probably your best bet or one of your best bets as far as an open source uh, GPT4 alternative you can run on relatively... Um, modest hardware. And on to the next story, Meta's Habitat 3.0 simulates real-world environments for intelligent AI robot research. So this is more of a robotics-focused paper, not another model. And it's about Habitat 3.0, which is this uh, simulation environment where you can train and evaluate robots. As you can tell from 3.0, this is the third iteration. It's been a work in progress for years. And in general, in robotics, since around 2016, 2017, since essentially deep learning and reinforcement learning became popular, there has been an ongoing trend of continuous work on these sorts of simulation environments for robot training and evaluation. And so this is kind of a pretty mature version of that. They have a whole data set of different realistic home environments, the Habitat Synthetic Scenes data set. They have uh, a specific robot, Home Robot, which is based on a real robot that in simulation you can train to do various tasks around the home. They can also now simulate human agents to be able to train uh, kind of collaborative tasks. So the, there's a lot to this third release, but uh, the high-level version is that you know, these kinds of simulated environments for training robotics are getting more and more sophisticated and physically realistic and, you know, more kind of full of realistic apartment-like scenes. Uh, and, and this is furthering that trend. Yeah, and we, which is absolutely essential in robotics, especially, right? Because so much of it is, you know, you, you need to train these models to perform or train these robots to perform certain actions, and you need a huge amount of training data. And in real physical environments, like you have to reset the environment every time you get the robot to do a task. You have to, you know, cover for mistakes, and and then and then movements just take a, a finite amount of time. It takes a few seconds to perform some kind of movement. And uh, when you're doing hundreds of thousands or millions even of training runs, that, that's just like totally unrealistic. And so you're forced to go with simulations, you're forced to go with you know, techniques like this, which is precisely why there's such a focus on simulations, on, on, on good <coughs> simulated environments to close, to close that what's known as the sim to real gap, the, the gap between what's simulated and, and then what happens in the real world. This is also consistent with 
by the way, Meta's philosophy, you know, they think that the way to approach human level intelligence is to go with like a multimodal embodied grounded systems, systems that um, interact with the real world as much as possible, maybe even have uh, a physical form, but certainly do process a wide range of data, not just text, but also images, video, and so on, which starts to bias you more towards the robotics world. So um, certainly not so surprising that they would be uh, focusing really hard on uh, this type of dimension. Yeah. Uh, for context, Habitat 1.0 was released in 2019 and 2.0 was 2021. So, you know, big uh, ongoing engineering project. And uh, yeah, if you're curious to see what this kind of simulated environment looks like, as always, you can just go ahead and follow the link we have in the description to take a look. Next, we have DeepMind Unisim simulates reality to train robots game characters. And so this is actually not entirely unrelated uh, to the meta story we just covered. Um, basically, this is a, as they put it, a universal simulator of real world interaction. Uh, it's designed to simulate the outcomes of executing um, instructions, like open the drawer, um, but also like very specific low level um, uh, actions like move by this amount in this direction, that sort of thing. So the idea is to be able to predict the outcome now of, of a movement so that you can simulate that next step to help accelerate the training process in part. And so, um, you know, very philosophically aligned again with the, the, the meta piece, but, um, another take on it perhaps. And, and, you know, another step forward from DeepMind in this case, which, uh, is of course that Google owned lab. And now back to open source models with the story. Gina AI launches world's first open source 8K text embedding rivaling open AI. So one thing, if you're not an AI developer, you may not know is that aside from ChatGPT, one of the big offerings of open AI is text embeddings, which is basically convert text to some string of numbers that can then be used to compare them or input to another AI model for training or, or things like that. And as far as commercial offerings, OpenAI does kind of lead the pack in many ways on, uh, you know, you give us your text, we give you some embeddings that you can use. And so this announcement is of Gina Embeddings V2, which are said to be outperforming OpenAI's uh, embeddings and uh, open source. So potentially big deal. Yep, and, and more competitive pressure on OpenAI to keep you know, releasing the next version and the next version. You can really see the open source pressures now eroding those, uh, those margins potentially. And this, you know, by the way, I, it's not clear to me. I'd be really curious to know usage patterns at OpenAI. What do they make more money from or what do they see more demand for as between just like raw text generation and then the embeddings? Um, because the embeddings are things that you end up using... Uh, it, for example, if you want to do product recommendations right, to your customers, so you might take descriptions, verbal, written descriptions of the products, get the embeddings that correspond to those descriptions from GPT-4, and then use those embeddings mathematically, th those, that list of numbers that now describes the product text, uh, and use that list of numbers to do some math on it to determine which products should be shown to the user, blah, blah, blah. So anytime you want to do that sort of thing, um, you know, that's kind of a high volume thing. Uh, I, again, kind of curious, like how significant this is for OpenAI's uh, underlying business model. And on to the last story in this section, Lemma, an open language model for mathematics. And that is the story. So these researchers, they can code Lemma and further trained it on 
more data essentially proof pile two, which is a mixture of scientific papers and web data containing mathematics and so on and so on. And they now released this uh, new model that uh, has variants with 7 billion and 34 billion parameters and is presumably the best model you can use if you're focused uh, on math specifically. Yeah, and they're comparing its performance to um, the uh, famous Minerva um, uh, math models, basically, that were produced, I think it was by DeepMind or Google AI at the time, um, that were said to like basically rival, it was like grad student level mathematics, like really impressive stuff. Well, um, guess what? This, this new model is more parameter efficient. Um, so using fewer parameters, and um, you know, there's a a kind of scaling recipe that tells you if you have this many parameters, then this is how much uh, computational budget, this is the, the amount of computational resources that's optimal um, given a data set to train that model. And um, uh, so, it, you know, if if these are both compute optimal in that sense, then it looks like this is a pretty big advance over Minerva because it is more parameter efficient, which suggests it's also more compute efficient. Um, and uh, yeah, so so again, really, uh, really big. And, and math is, is quite important because it speaks to underlying reasoning capabilities. So when you think about the, the, the kind of, I was gonna say the slow march to AGI, possibly the fast march to AGI, uh, a lot of people like to use math as an indicator of how are we doing along that axis, because it does speak to generalization ability to uh, sort of like general purpose reasoning. So, um, anyway, uh, I think a fairly important result if you're tracking that space, but, um, uh, otherwise, just kind of cool that AI can do math even better. And next, moving on to our research and advancements, we're talking about eliciting human preferences with language models. Okay, so here's the framing. Um, oh, by the way, this paper was co-written by an author who is at Anthropic, so it's kind of more sort of safety-related research, um, alignment-related research as we as we dive deeper into understanding and accounting for human preferences. Um, so the basic idea here is that for any given task that you might ask an AI to perform, uh, there's always this risk that the AI may misinterpret what you're asking or may come up with a, you could think of it as like a dangerously creative solution uh, that achieves the letter of what you're asking, but maybe misses the spirit of it or misses some sort of implicit assumption that you are making. You know, like move the move the vase from this part of the room to that part of the room, but oh, by the way, like don't run over the baby when you do it, right? Stuff like that. And so the question is, how do we elicit that full range of relevant human preferences um, in, in the process of having the human interact with the AI? Is there a way that we could get an AI, in this case a language model, to elicit from the human more relevant details to make sure that it, it understands deeply exactly what the human wants and how they want uh, their desires to be realized. And so this is really the idea behind this paper. Um, it's essentially using uh, AI systems to, or language model, to continue to elicit um, uh, more information after receiving a prompt from a human. So there's an initial prompting stage where the human says, hey, you know, I want X, Y, and Z. Uh, then we get into this kind of active learning stage where the model sort of thinks about it and goes, okay, well, you know, what, what am I missing here? And you know, what, what could go wrong? And then there's generative elicitation. It turns back to the user and asks those questions. You know, like, hey, tell me more. Like, uh, here, here's one thing that I'm a little confused about. Implicitly is what it's saying. Tell me more about this thing. Like, do you really want it done this way? Do you really want it done that way? And um, yeah, what they find is that this approach, which they call GATE, by the way, which stands for Generative Active Task 
elicitation uh, seems to work better in many contexts for sort of getting humans to, to relate their preferences, which, you know, again, this is something that as AIs get more and more clever and capable, you're going to need this because humans often don't know what we're asking for. You know, in that first first moment, if you've ever worked, you know, as a contractor or something for somebody else, they ask you for X and you go and do what you think X is and they go, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean like that. Well, this is basically trying to, to solve a version of that problem. Right. So you can think of it as essentially, you know, the current paradigm is sort of, you know, you give an input, a prompt to a model, and then it may or may not work well, and it's on you to then revise your input, you know, to do better. And this is sort of like making it an interactive process where the model itself can then have a follow-up question or a clarification, things like that, uh, to then help you sort of uh, tune it to perform the best. It's sort of related to this notion of active learning where typically in machine learning, right, you have a data set of inputs and outputs and you decide on the inputs and that's it. Active learning is this idea where the model itself can request for certain inputs or certain types of data to learn from where it may not, you know, be confident, so to speak. And so they kind of coined this term of a generative active task elicitation of, uh, you know, give me more details so I can hone in on what you want. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, need to see Anthropic collaborating with MIT and Stanford on this one. It's actually a Stanford grad, so I can see why he collaborated. Okay, we, we get it, Andre. You yeah. went oh, yeah, okay, okay. Everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And next story, a new NVIDIA agent powered by GPT-4 can train robots. So NVIDIA Research has developed this AI agent called Eureka, which is powered by OpenAI's GPT-4, that can teach robots complex skills. It does so by writing reward functions. So when you do reinforcement learning, a lot of robotics, you have robots learn to do tasks by basically trial and error, and then you give some points for doing well and give some negative points for doing badly, and that's reinforcement learning. The issue with reinforcement learning is you need someone to write that reward function of, you know, did you do well or not? And that can be non-trivial and obviously it does mean that the AI cannot really learn by itself. You know, a human does need to be there to write some code to do the writing of a word. And so this kind of removes that requirement by making a text-only AI like GPT-4 be able to write the logic for producing a word. And uh, then the robot can do the low-level motions and trial and error and so on to learn to, for instance, uh, spin a pen in its fingers. And it actually looks pretty pretty cool what it learns to do. Uh, so definitely, yeah, it is, as the title says, moving the ability for robots to truly autonomously learn without having humans to specify reward functions. Yeah, and it does seem to work a lot better too. Um, they they mentioned that the uh, the Eureka generated reward programs, so these these automated reward functions, 
um, outperform human written ones more than on more than 80% of tasks. So that's no small feat. And it does lead to an average performance improvement. So when you actually then look at how that translates into the performance of the robot itself, that performance goes up 50%, actually more than 50%. So um, yeah, pretty significant improvement. Um, and, and it's sort of a a, seems like a sort of self-prompting kind of thing, or indirectly self-prompting, I guess. Uh, essentially, you uh, get this thing to you know, to try out a bunch of different strategies. It aggregates the result of using those strategies, and then instructs the LLM to improve the next generation of reward functions. So, try a bunch of reward functions, see how they do. Then. Um, then based on that, think about, essentially, that's what we're talking about here, think about with, via an LLM uh, what the, the next generation reward functions might be and then test those out. So um, yeah, really interesting closing that, uh, that loop. Um, last thing to mention too is the strategic implications for, of NVIDIA doing this specifically. Um, you know, one of the things you, you might think, oh, well, NVIDIA, they're, they're a, a GPU company, right? They, they design and pump out these like H100 chips. Uh, why are they dabbling in, in model development? They have done this quite a bit, um, including in language models. They helped make uh, Megatron Turing NLG back in the day. But this is really about keeping an ear to the ground. On, um, on model development, understanding the needs of model developers, how models are evolving so they can adapt their hardware correspondingly. Um, the fact that Amazon didn't have this capacity was cited as one of the reasons that they invested in Anthropic, actually, just to get that window into the needs of model developers. So NVIDIA trying to really make sure that they remain at the forefront of not just hardware design, but also uh, of essentially their, their customer's space, which is model development. Exactly. Yeah, we've done quite a bit of robotics research. Uh, worth noting also that the paper itself isn't uh, just NVIDIA. It's in collaboration with UPenn, Caltech, and UT Austin. Uh, and uh, it's all done in simulation in this case. Uh, it, there are some complications when you get to writing reward functions on real robots, because then you don't have access to the low-level state of the environment and things like that. But regardless, uh, definitely a pretty cool result, uh, moving reinforcement learning to be a more kind of realistic thing you can actually do without a ton of human effort. Moving on to our lightning round, we have unveiling the general intelligence factor in language models, a psychometric approach. Okay, we're back on this trend. We've covered it a couple times of treating language models um, from a psychological perspective, almost, I want to say. Um, I guess we're just in 2023, and that's how things go now. Um, the framing here is that back in the day, uh, there was this guy who proposed uh, this, this theory that human intelligence was derived from some uh, latent factor. He called it a G factor. stands for general intelligence factor. And the idea is that we draw on this every time we solve problems. And we draw on this, this underlying general intelligence factor in addition to some maybe more topic-specific, task-specific factors. Um, and so the, the human intelligence on this theory is, is that combination of this G factor, the general intelligence, and the S factor, the kind of more specific factors. And you can see kind of a rough analogy here between pre-training and fine-tuning. Right? If you start to think about that a little bit, the, the general knowledge, that's the pre-training. But then when we want our, our model to do really well at a specific domain, we do some fine-tuning. Um, it turns out that this G factor is remarkably reliable. It's one of the single most um, robust uh, statistical uh, phenomena in, um, in psychometrics today. And it explains apparently more than 40% 
of the variance in cognitive ability tests in humans. About, roughly speaking, 40% of human intelligence can be explained by this underlying factor. It replicates in mice, 35% of the variance there, and primates, 47% of the variance there, um, nothing in fish. But uh, why does this matter? Well, it suggests maybe it also applies to AI systems. Maybe it applies to LLMs. And so that's what this paper is going to essentially explore. It'll look at the uh, open LLM leaderboard. There are about 1,200 models there. It'll pull them down and give them this G-factor test. And what it finds, lo and behold, is, yeah, there is a single G-factor that seems to capture 85% of the variance in this case um, of the sort of intelligence, if you will, of the capabilities across the open LLM leaderboard. So even more, considerably more actually, um, indicative of one unifying underlying concept of intelligence, which is interesting because people have debated for a long time, is there such a thing as general intelligence? Is that even a, a coherent concept? This at least starts to signal that, yeah, you know what, May maybe it actually is, or at least as far as LLMs are concerned. Exactly. And this is really interesting. We have mentioned many times how it's hard to benchmark and actually evaluate these language models. I mean, you can say, okay, it's good at like answering trivia questions, but then is it good about reasoning or math or like, you know, what if it's good at one thing or not another? How do you compare them? So if you can actually boil it down to one number, which is this general intelligence factor, that could be a pretty significant finding. And uh, yeah, there's some pretty you know, interesting evidence in this research uh, on that front. And I'm sure we'll see some discussion and follow-up research investigating this idea further. Next story, agent tuning enabling generalized agent abilities for LLMs. Interestingly, coming from GPU-AI, which we just discussed earlier this uh, episode, and also Tingu University. Yes. And so they present the idea of agent tuning and simple method to enhance the agent abilities of large language models. So we've discussed agents many times. They are essentially the idea of instead of just producing an input and output, you kind of let the AI model wild and tell it to do this. And it kind of continuously needs to operate in the world to achieve some outcome over sort of a sequence of steps without being uh, handheld by you all the way. And so this research shows that in general, the open source models out there aren't very good at these tasks compared to something like GPT 3.5 or GPT 4. And what they uh, do is construct agent instruct a data set that is basically full of uh, data specifically for performing well as an agent, these high quality interaction trajectories, they then fine tune Llama 2 and create agent LM, which is an uh, open sourced um, language model that is good at being an agent. Yeah, and I, I think one of the, the the big kind of conceptual I don't know if I should call it a breakthrough, but the conceptual difference between this and previous papers is you know previously you, when you think about fine tuning, usually you're thinking about fine tuning some language model like a glorified autocomplete system to do a dialogue. So you fine tune dialogue fine tuning is one common category, or to follow instructions that's another common category. 
Um, instruction and dialogue fine tuning are kind of, I would say like the two most popular. There's obviously like downstream task specific stuff like coding and so on. But those are the, the two big families that you often see. You'll often hear a company will come out with like, you know, hey, we just we just made our you know Llama 2 and uh, we've made a, a, an additional version of it that's fine tuned for dialogue and an additional version that's fine tuned to follow instructions. That's like a very common trio that people will do. And they're adding essentially another pillar to this set of pillars. And this is the agent fine tuning uh, data set, the agent instruct data set, which says like, okay, in addition to an instruction following data set and a data set that contains human dialogue, yeah, like a data set of trajectories ought to make sense. And using this, they're able to take, like you said, Andre, this Llama 2 base model and fine tune it to achieve agent performance comparable to what you get on GPT 3.5, which of course is a closed source model. And so um, their system, Agent LM 70 billion, Agent LM 70B, is um, like pretty, like this is pretty impressive because GPT 3.5, I think it's fair to say, is kind of like the, that's the cutoff. That's the first model that's that's actually able to do agent level uh, or agent like planning. So they're able to, to reach that level thanks to this fine tuning scheme using a base model that otherwise you know can't accommodate that same level of performance. Right. Uh, just to be a little more concrete, there aren't a ton of details, but uh, some of these tasks can, for instance, be shopping online or uh, just doing stuff on web, right? Browsing uh, on the web to achieve some outcome, uh, doing general computer tasks, uh, anything where it's kind of a, a task where you have to like think through, okay, this is the sequence steps I need to do. Let me do A, B, C, and then, you know, achieve it. So as you said, I think pretty, pretty neat uh, development. And actually, I'm sorry, one last thing. I know we're in the lightning round. I'm just, I'm brutalizing this. But there is one more really important detail that I think we should mention. Um, so usually when you fine tune, you end up losing some of the generalization ability of the base model. Basically, you end up turning a generalist into a specialist and you lose the generalist ability of that base model in the process. What they've done, they, it turns out that this generalist ability, though, really, really matters when you're making agents. Those agents need that general world knowledge to be able to behave in a kind of automatic, uh, kind of as automatons in the world. Um, and so what they do is they intersperse this specialized fine tuning for agent uh, behavior with more general purpose training. So they kind of continue the pre-training along with the fine tuning, and they end up finding that the resulting agents actually do even better on general reasoning ability tasks. So kind of an interesting and I think an important distinction between the traditional uh, fine tuning that we see for you know dialogue and instruction following and this more agent-oriented fine tuning. Next story, contrastive preference learning, learning from human feedback without RL. So you've probably heard the term RLHF, reinforcement learning from human feedback. That's how you usually tune these language models to go from being autocomplete to being actually you know, doing what you want. And uh, we've discussed that last week quite a bit. There's kind of a lot of questions open as to this RLHF step that uh, OpenAI, for instance, uses and Anthropic, I think, uses. This paper goes into showing how 
really you may not want rewards as your objective. Uh, there's, you know, when you solicit preferences from humans, you can mathematically derive another objective and optimize for another uh, criteria to better get what people actually want. And so that's contrast to preference learning. It's a simpler objective. It can be applied to anything. In this paper, they do not apply it to uh, language models, or at least not large language models. So this is more about the general topic of RLHF. But I think it does tie into this whole question of, you know, figuring out exactly what we want to do for uh, fine-tuning language models to follow human uh, preferences. And on to the last story, mind-blowing IBM chip speeds up AI. Researchers at IBM had developed a brain-inspired computer chip called NorthPol that can uh, work faster and consume less power by integrating memory and processing. So usually our chips have this von Neumann architecture, right, where your compute is sort of separated from your memory storage. Uh, which leads to a bottleneck when you need to move data back and forth. And so this is a different chip architecture where the two are basically kind of held together. Uh, this has 256 computing units, each of which has its own memory and with some connections inspired by the human cerebral cortex. So that leads to a lot less energy usage. Uh, this is still, you know, in the R and D phase, so it's not usable for large language models. But uh, you know, this is uh, an ongoing research project in the, I guess, chip space of how can we move away from von Neumann a bit to make things more energy efficient, like the brain is. Yeah, and, and I think a good caveat to flag, you know, the semiconductor industry being what it is, we will not feel the effects of this for like many, many years. Um, but it is, yeah, it is it is addressing this fundamental bottleneck of like moving data around, usually, especially in AI, right? When we're training, what we're doing is we're sending, we're, we're splitting up our, our training load, uh, workload to all, and sending it out to a bunch of different uh, processors to do some processing, and then they have to pool their results together. And it's often in that pooling step where you know you have to wait for all this data to come in, and the communication is just a, a nightmare. Um, so you know, various strategies have been proposed to deal with that. Cerebras has their kind of like um, giant chip strategy to put everything on the chip. It's sort of analogous in, in some ways to this because you're housing everything all together. Um, but this is another approach that's a little bit more distributed. And um, yeah, they've got 256 cores that they're looking at putting a memory on each one of these. Um, ultimately, it does seem like this is a bit of a smorgasbord of different ideas that they're all kind of um, clustering together uh, that have each been done in you know, different places. But here's the first time they're really uh, merging them together in one chip. And yeah, the expectation is that the efficiency here would be 20, 25 times better than that of uh, current designs. And I actually need to look uh, more deeply at the paper to see if they mean the the uh, energy efficiency or the actual um, processing speed, uh, but anyway, it's kind of uh, interesting as people flirt with you know what does that next generation chip look like? Right, as you said, I think not going to be you know used in practice anytime soon. But 
I do personally suspect that energy efficiency in hardware will become more and more important, right? As we yes. try to scale up to trillions of parameters, right? At some point, you have to use less heat and so on. So interesting space to it's, keep an eye on. It's already turning into a bottleneck. You're, you're totally right, right? Every, like every time these companies set up a, a data center, they're having to like take up a meaningful fraction of the local like grid production. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, energy efficiency is going to be part of the equation, so to speak. And on to policy and safety, starting with GM Cruise Unit suspends all driverless operations after California ban. So this was quite a dramatic development this week. Cruise first was ordered to stop operations in San Francisco. There was a crash several weeks ago where uh, Cruise was sort of not the cause of a crash. Uh, another human driver crashed into a pedestrian, and a pedestrian was then kind of launched onto a cruise car uh, that was then um, involved, I suppose. But it turned out that the cruise car, after stopping and braking at this event, uh, drove some distance forward to uh, pull over with the person kind of still being tugged along the cruise car. And this was not seemingly presented to the DMV by Cruise when they presented this in San Francisco. So potentially because of that, potentially because of a variety of factors, earlier this week, Cruise was ordered to stop all operations in San Francisco. And then uh, just... A couple of days after that, crews announced they are stopping operations everywhere in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, kind of a huge deal for the self-driving space. Probably not a bad thing for Waymo, but uh, yeah, it's it's a quite dramatic setback. Yeah, and apparently, you know, we're now dealing with multiple probes uh, from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the NH. TSA um, on uh, into cruise specifically. So yeah, as you said, not the first time this has happened, and um, I, I wonder what this will do as well, just broadly to all of the self-driving car companies. Because you know we've seen similar issues, obviously with Tesla. We've you know, we've seen similar issues with really all um, all self-driving car companies. So um, the, the challenges in being calibrated because. You know, you're you're going to see different kinds of failure modes with these systems. Failure modes that seem like you know a human wouldn't have made that stupid mistake, and so when they screw up, it seems really obvious and 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 like frustrating, um, and it is. It's terrible. But then zooming out, like statistically, is it more safe on average than human driving? And so I think we'll have to live in this weird middle ground where. You know the kinds of mistakes we see look really dumb, but they do happen less often, and uh, or eventually will happen less often. I, I don't know that we're there yet, but kind of an interesting um, uh, psychological challenge for us as we figure out what do we want, right? Do we want uh, a smaller number of dumb-looking mistakes that a human could have prevented, um, or do we want just fewer mistakes overall? Exactly. I believe Cruise has been operating uh, as a commercial product for maybe about half a year. They started uh, kind of this general offering 
early this year, and there's been a variety of incidents. Uh, even back in August, the DMV directed crews to remove half of its driverless vehicles after another crash. Uh, and there's been many kind of news stories of minor and less minor events. So it, this concludes kind of a somewhat rough launch year for crews. Waymo seemingly hasn't had as much trouble as far as we've seen in the news. So hard to say if this will slow down the expansion of the space overall, or maybe this is primarily bad for crews. And next story, AI researchers uncover ethical and legal risks to using popular data sets. This covers the Data Providence Initiative, which analyzed over 1,800 fine-tuning data sets used to train AI models and found that 70 of them lacked proper licensing or had been mislabeled with more permissive guidelines than intended. Uh, this goes back to, I suppose, maybe a trend. I don't know if you want to call it a trend, but going back to ImageNet uh, in 2006, like the first large-scale data set was collected by scraping the internet with maybe not as much worry about things like licensing. And so I think for a while, in, in my view, there's been a bit of a um, culture in academia and AI research of not being very careful about things like licensing, uh, partially because I suppose this has been mainly for research for a while. But uh, now that everything is becoming commercialized, this sort of analysis does show that a lot of the data sets that are out there and have been used for research may not be ideal for actual deployment. Yeah, the, the argument that Hugging Face is making, so Hugging Face, this you know um, open source platform, uh, or in part that's what they are for uh, for LLMs and AI more generally, they're kind of pushing back and saying, well, look, um, the uh, data sets tend to have better documentation when they're open, um, and you know, in a way that's supposed to, I guess, make us feel better. But ultimately, what this does do is it means these models that may be poorly documented. Um, are more available. And so you see more people using them, not aware of the potential legal risks associated with using models that may have been trained on uh, all kinds of copyrighted material. And uh, so now they're feeling the heat a little bit and, and they've come out and said they're prioritizing efforts to improve documentation, um, including automatically suggesting things like metadata and stuff like that. This is, I think, just a challenge that the whole industry is going to have to deal with. Uh, we don't know right now what the legal precedent is going to turn out to be. I think that can't be uh, emphasized enough. Like literally no one knows right now, what responsibility do you have as the end user of a model that was trained on copyrighted material? Like if that model spits out something and you use it commercially and it turns out to somehow violate copyright, or um, if, the, if just the mere use of a model that was ever trained on copyrighted data is itself a violation of some eventual law or, or precedent, like what what standing do you have, or like not standing, but what responsibility do you have as the end user of that model? Um, really, really unclear. And I think this is just, you know, like people seem to be of two minds on this. Some people are walking on eggshells around these models as a result. Others are just barreling forward. And obviously, we've covered Google that said, "Hey, you know what? We'll we'll indemnify anybody. We'll protect anybody." Um, 
and support you and through a legal process if you use our models, some of our models, not all, if you use some of our models to, um, uh, to do stuff and then you get hit by a copyright uh, lawsuit. So, yep, yeah, we're, we're in a, a funny nebulous gray zone when it comes to this stuff. And moving on to our lightning round, we open with AI Safety Summit Day 1 and Day 2 program. And if that sounds like an unsexy headline, it's because it's not really a headline. It's the title of a page on the U.S. government's website about the AI Safety Summit. So there's been lots of speculation about what exactly the AI Safety Summit will involve, this being that big U.K. global AI Safety Summit that... Uh, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has sort of made one of his big kind of legacy plays. I think that's a fair a fair statement at this point. Um, and we now know. So there are a bunch of uh, events happening across two days. The first day, they're, they've got a, a sessions about uh, risks to global safety from frontier AI misuse. So maybe more of a weaponization type of discussion. Um, then following that, they have risks from unpredictable advances in frontier AI capability. And uh, if you read between the lines, you know that's starting to, to feel like a little bit more AGI, kind of rogue AI focused. Um, and it, it refers to this idea that as you scale models more, you know they can suddenly have emergent capabilities that you saw no hints of before. Um, and then if you were in doubt at all as to whether that was going to be a topic for discussion, uh, the third uh, roundtable discussion is going to be about risks from loss of control over frontier AI. So they're going straight for the jugular and then later talking about risks of frontier AI to society more generally. So I really like that cluster, you know, for everything from weaponization to loss of control to kind of more social uh, effects. I think that's going to be a really interesting um, set of discussions. They've got roundtable discussions um, on how to improve frontier AI safety. And I think this is going to be a source of huge controversy. You know, is the model, um, okay, here's how you scale AI safely. That's, that's one way to do it. That's the model that Anthropic is going with. Um, or is the model, hey, unless and until you can guarantee safety at the next level of scale, you don't get to do it. And these two, there's sort of two forks in the road there. Anthropic has their responsible scaling policy. They're basically saying, look, um, we have a, a recipe here that seems reasonable. Um, what they don't tell you is that there is absolutely no way to predict when certain dangerous capabilities like self-replication or dangerous behaviors like power-seeking will emerge. Um, that, is like, that is known. That is just technically impossible. And so there is literally no way to design a responsible scaling policy that, that robustly will be safe to the kinds of AGI concerns that a lot of people have expressed. And so that's where you get this camp that says, wait, no, we just need to you know, pause everything until or have caps on compute until we can prove the safety of these systems. I think that'll be a big part of the discussion here uh, at this forum. And, um, and it's going to set the tone, I think, especially because Rishi Sunak's government, by far, by far the most focused uh, on this, this risk class from, of, of any of the G20 countries. Right. We'll have to see. It's happening on November 1st and 2nd. So I think we might talk about the first day on the next episode, but not the second. Uh, I guess we'll see. But as you can imagine, this will be covered in upcoming episodes. Next story, Anthropic's AI chatbot Claude is posting lyrics to popular songs or lawsuit claims. Universal Music is uh, suing Anthropic, claiming that uh, Claude, their chatbot, is posting lyrics of songs by Katy Perry and Gloria Gaynor, which uh, seems 
definitely true because <laughs> he thinks no the lyrics uh but yes there's this lawsuit and other music publishers are also named as plaintiffs yeah i guess just an, another another one right added to the pile unfortunately added to a pile. These, yeah I, I feel like we need to do a, a law episode at some point but i feel woefully underqualified but you know what i'm underqualified to talk about anything on this podcast so what the hell let's do a law let's do a legal episode at some point um, yeah just- let's just list for all the lawsuits and the status you know we don't even need to discuss any details because there's yeah. so many of them uh, speaking of which, the next story is Mike Huckabee says Microsoft and Meta stole his books to train AI. Uh, so former Arkansas governor Mike Huckabee, kind of a big name of the US, and a group of other religious offers have filed a lawsuit against Meta, Microsoft, and Bloomberg to tr- who train their large language models on data on the web. We've covered multiple lawsuits from offers of books, and this is another one. Add it to the pile. Next story is Clearview AI successfully appeals nine million uh, pound fine in the UK. We haven't covered Clearview in quite a while, but it used to be something we talked about a lot. This is a facial recognition company. So given an image of a face, it can pretty much give you the name of that person uh, if that person happens to have had photos of themselves with their name on the web. They scraped a whole bunch of data with no kind of permissions or or privacy, et cetera. And so as a result, they were fined in the UK and elsewhere in many countries in France, Italy, and Greece. Well, uh, it seems they have successfully appealed this large fine in the UK. And that's pretty much the story. Yeah, I think one of the lenses to look at this through is is the precedent stuff, right? Because we're still at the stage where all these things are very precedent setting. So, uh, yeah. Uh, next up, we have North Korea experiments with AI in cyber warfare, according to a U.S. official. Uh, this is coming from Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger. And so she basically came out and said, hey, you know what? We're seeing what seems to be the utilization of AI in cyber warfare from North Korea. As she put it, quote, we have observed some North Korean and other nation state and criminal actors try to use AI models to help accelerate writing malicious software and finding systems to exploit. Um, probably a good place to flag that there's this question about, um, okay, sure, people are using LLMs to uh, facilitate cyber attacks, not maybe as scary if they're just using the LLMs to make malware, because that's just accelerating human labor. But what's happening here is, you know, using AI to help find systems to exploit. Um, This may be hinting at something even like the use of agentized versions of uh, GPT 3.5 or 4 style auto GPT agents, not that they would be using those particular systems, um, but this is a difference in kind, right? It's a, it's a difference in quality, not just quantity. We're not just talking about doing something faster. We're talking about you know, potentially automated agents that can find vulnerabilities super fast. And you know, you, you look at uh, malware swarms and things like that as being very, very plausible. Um, I, I will say, like this was obviously going to be coming. I think we're the next year. I'm calling it now. We're going to see a massive trend of um, of AI agentized uh, malware bots. That would be my strong guess. Next kind of 18 months uh, tops. And so I think this is kind of a, an early warning volley. You don't always find out about them. So it's interesting. The U.S. is coming out and saying this, and North Korea has a long kind of track record of of cyber attacks generally. And so uh, not surprising to see them move in this direction. 
Exactly. It is worth noting North Korea is, I guess you could say formidable. I mean, as a nation state, they have invested quite a bit in their cyber warfare capabilities, uh, much as Russia has as well. And they have used it in many cases. So this will be, as you said, something that probably will become a big deal. Next story, OpenAI forms new team to assess catastrophic risks of AI. That's pretty much it. It's called the Preparedness Team, uh, led by Alexander Madri, who was uh, an MIT. And as part of this, they released a form, actually, where you could kind of give a hypothetical take of if you are a bad agent and you get one of our tools like DALI3 or uh, Whisper or GPT, you know, what could you do to wreak the most havoc? So that seems to be the first initiative, kind of getting crowdsourcing, I suppose, uh, these scenarios. And uh, with that, I assume they are going to work to prepare for the preparedness. <laughs> to prepare for the preparedness. Yes. And uh, their their team um, is going to be doing a couple of different key tasks. Uh, the four that they highlight on their website right now are uh, looking at uh, predicting, sorry, tracking, evaluating, forecasting, and protecting against uh, risks coming from individualized persuasion, cybersecurity, um, chem, bio, rad, and nuke threats, and autonomous replication and adaptation. So this is interesting because when you think back to the GPT-4 technical report, um, these are basically the categories of uh, evaluations that OpenAI had applied to GPT-4. And uh, interesting to see those codified now as part of their preparedness team, this explicit focus on catastrophic risk from AI and aligned as well with their you know, super alignment team that they announced earlier in the year that was saying, basically, look, we think we, think we might be approaching uh, super intelligence or, or AGI. Uh, we need to be ready to align these systems. This is sort of like related to that you know, preparedness team, maybe more on the operational side, but autonomous replication and adaptation definitely, definitely jumps out as one of those things that like, yeah, I mean, if we, if we get there, boy, uh, my money's on, uh, we got a real big problem. <laughs> and on to our last section, synthetic media and art. The first story is this new data poisoning tool lets artists fight back against generative AI. So the tool is Nightshade, and it can essentially poison uh any data that can then be scraped uh, for training models. So it can create thousands of poisoned samples that if used to train models can potentially harm them. Uh, and um, yeah, this could be used by artists when they post their data to essentially make it so AI companies aren't quite so indiscriminate in uh, Swallowing up any data they can find. Yeah, what I find interesting about this too is like the you know you can say that the generative AI companies would just adapt by you know developing detectors for poison data and then you know the the kind of arms race escalates. But what I think is interesting about this from a legal standpoint is that it at least forces them to take that step. And if they are taking that step, like at that point, they're you know if that ever gets discovered. You know that, that one of these companies is like deliberately trying to work their way around some sort of uh, data poisoning strategy to protect the author's rights to their own images. 
Um, at that point, you know, I suspect the legal <laughs> the legal system would take a pretty dim view of that activity. So I think it, you know, although technologically it's kind of unclear where that race ends, I think it does maybe legally change the landscape in a way that's somewhat interesting. This tool was developed by a university, and they are thinking of integrating into uh, Glaze, which is this free tool that was already existing that allowed artists to mask their style to prevent it from being scraped. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's an ongoing kind of effort by this team at the University of Chicago to give tools to artists. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them started using it. And just a couple more short stories. Amazon now lets advertisers use generative AI to pretty up their product shots. In beta testing, there is the AI image generation tool for advertisers at Amazon that can make your uh, photos look nice. And that's the story. Yeah. Kind of cool. Amazon getting more uh, more in AI into their uh, their products. I think they you know potentially feel like they have to play catch up a little bit with Google and Microsoft doing such crazy things. But um, yeah, uh, I'm curious to see what these sort of augmented images end up looking like. Yeah, if you go to the article and take a look, it's it's kind of neat. They um, have a whole sort of little UI with the ability to make a theme of like put this in the kitchen or uh you know uh put this in a white background make it look very professional so if you don't have a professional product photographer you know maybe i guess you can use this instead as a small business uh doing uh work on amazon yeah i mean because the images that they show on the um is this actually live no, no, that's why. Okay, yeah, they're they're beta testing because the images that they show here are, like are really impressive. Um, they're also just sort of uh, I'm trying my brain's trying to figure out if they look kind of surreal in a sense because people have um, have identified you know s- some small issues where like you know forks start to look really weird or or things like that, but it's it's pretty minor and a good use case. You know, you, you can you can make a pretty bad mistake in this sort of image generation and. and users will be pretty forgiving. Yeah, you can kind of think of it as a filter for your product photo. You know, we have filters yeah. for our faces to make them look nice. Now you have filters for your like uh, microwave oven or whatever it is. So Yeah. And on to the very last story. The Beatles' final song now and then to be released fe- thanks to AI technology. So there was a song that was written and sung by John Lennon in the late 1970s, but it couldn't be completed due to technical limitations. Now AI-assisted software was used to isolate the instruments, vocals, and conversation from the footage of the Beatles recording their final album, Let It Be, uh, and allowed for the completion and, I guess, clean generation of the song now and then. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr have also produced new parts for the song. It will be released as a double A-side single with uh, another uh, with their debut single, Love Me Do. And do we know uh, who owns the copyright? Because, I mean, they quote Paul McCartney in the article as saying, you know, like, uh, it, it like he heard John's voice. It it was very clear you know, how emotional it was. Well, so clearly, like there's some involvement 
on the part of the Beatles themselves, they, they seem to be, you know, happy enough with this. It just, it's kind of interesting. Um, cause now you've got a deceased person who's going to be contributing to an audio file that will be owned. I don't know. It's, it's, this is like part of the legal, <laughs> legal nightmare that, um, yeah, I let's just go and assume that whoever owns the rights to the footage uh, or whatever to the original source data decided to do this, and then Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr seemingly have signed on board to release this final Beatles song. Wow. And with that, we are done with this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and more at lastweekin.ai. You can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai to give us any thoughts or feedback or suggestions or anything you like, even questions. Uh, please do share the podcast and review it if you like it. We do enjoy seeing those five-star reviews. But regardless, the main thing is to keep tuning in.